0: previously on Saving Apollo 13. And now both ships are dark and cold, like a dripping twilight. Three, two, one. Lovell says over the calm, Houston burn complete. They are now back in their corridor re-entry. But it's that night that Fred Hayes gets sick. Lovell notices how bad he looks, and they're discussing it when there's another explosion. Okay, Jack, amazingly enough, it looks like we've closed up the loose ends here. I hope so, because tomorrow is examination time. This is Saving Apollo 13, the incredible story of NASA's Apollo 13 mission. The spacecraft that failed en route to the moon and the feats of human ingenuity that saved the lives of the three men aboard. It's been four days since the catastrophic explosion in the service module. Since then, mission control has solved problem after problem to save the three men on board the spacecraft. Jack Swaggart, Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell have endured almost unbearable conditions. And it all comes down to this. Can the crippled spacecraft survive the final test, the brutal re-entry into Earth's atmosphere? I'm Sean Brady, forensic engineer, and this is the final episode of Saving Apollo 13. Re-entry.
1: It's Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 137 hours, uh, 20 minutes into the flight. A goodly uh, gathering of the astronaut corps in the Mission Control Center now. The crowd is is beginning to increase. Uh, already here, uh, Dr. Thomas Payne, uh, NASA Administrator. Mr. George Lowe, uh, NASA Deputy Administrator. Dave Scott, uh, Rusty Schweikert are among the astronauts in the viewing room at the present time, along with uh, Buzz Aldrin.
0: Gene Kranz stands at the flight director's console and looks out across mission control. He, along with everyone in this room, is going to bring their crew home. Because Kranz knows that when these men come together, they're capable of doing the impossible. This will be NASA's finest hour. And with that, Joe Kerwin, the Capcom for the remainder of the mission, says, Aquarius Houston... And Fred Hayes says, Go, Joe. Because Fred Hayes, Jack Swaggart, and Jim Lovell are ready too. Hayes still looks very ill, but they know adrenaline will get them through. They've just executed their final course correction, and when they look out of the ship, they see the earth filling their windows. They are so close to home. And right now, they feel they can tackle just about anything. They have a range of very unorthodox manoeuvres to execute. They have to separate the dead service module from the command module. Then they'll have to power up the command module, close the hatch, cut loose the limb, and prepare for re-entry in their command module odyssey. And Kerwin says, I have attitudes and angles for service module separation if you want a copy. You don't need a pad for this, just any blank sheet of paper will do. Hayes takes some paper from the flight plan and says, Go ahead, Houston. And Hayes writes it all down. And Kerwin goes on. The next stage is for you or Jim to execute a push of 0.5 feet per second with the four jets from the LEM. Have Jack perform the separation, then execute a pull at the same 0.5 feet per second in the opposite direction. Got it? So the limb is going to push in the direction of the service module to give it some momentum. Then they'll release the service module, which will keep going in that direction. And then they'll fire the jets on the limb, which will push it in the opposite direction. That way, they'll put some distance between the two modules and avoid a collision. Hayes says, got that. When do you want us to do this? And Kerwin says, about 13 minutes from now. But it's not time critical. And Lovell cuts over the comm. Can we do it anytime? Kerwin says, that's affirmative. You can jettison whenever you're ready. So Swaggart springs up into the tunnel and takes his position in the command module. He's floating in front of the instrument panel, staring at the jettison switches, and he sees his taped warning covering the LEM jet switch. Lovell and Hayes take their positions in the limb. All three of the crew have cameras floating beside them. Lovell says over the comm, Houston Aquarius, Jack's in the command module now. And Kerwin says, real fine, real fine. Proceed anytime. Lovell shouts up the tunnel to Swaggart. Jack, you ready? And Swaggart's voice echoes back down. All set when you guys are. And Lovell shouts. All right, I'll give you a five count. And on zero, I'll hit the trusters. When you feel the motion, let her go. Roger shouts Swaggart. He picks up the camera with his left hand and hovers his finger over the SM jet switch. In the limb, both Lovell and Hayes have picked up their cameras as well. And Lovell begins. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Lovell pushes the controller and the jets activate on the limb. In the command module, Swaggert flicks the switch and shouts, Jettison. The crew feel a pop and a jolt. Lovell pulls down on the controller, which pushes them away from the service module. Lovell calls out, Maneuver complete. Now all three men are glued to the windows, trying to see the service module. But they can't see anything. It's not drifting into view. Swagger darts along the windows in the command module, but he can see nothing. He yells down the tunnel, nothing, damn it, nothing. And Lovell and Hayes can see nothing either. And then Lovell finally sees it. It's beginning to drift by them, moving slowly. And it appears to be totally okay. No obvious damage at all. But it's also rolling on its own axis. And as it rotates, Lovell is suddenly shocked by what he sees. One of the panels on the side of it, panel four, is completely gone. And what's left is a gash running from one end of the module to the other. One-sixth of the outer skin is gone and hanging out of this wound is insulation and a tangle of wiring and rubber lining. And where oxygen tank 2 should be is nothing. All that's left is a charred space. But while seeing this damage would have shocked a normal person, this was not the case for Jim Lovell. He's a test pilot. And so are the rest of his crew. Living with risk like this was simply part of the job. Lovell gets on the radio to Houston. There's one whole side of the spacecraft missing. And Kerwin says, is that right? And Lovell continues. Look out there, would you? Right by the high-gain antenna, the whole panel is blown out, almost from the base to the engine. And Hayes adds... It looks like it got the engine bell, too. And Kerwin says, "Okay, Jim, we'd like you to get some pictures, but we want you to conserve fuel, so don't make any unnecessary manoeuvres. Swaggart starts taking picture after picture out the window. Lovell does the same. And as the service module begins to drift out of view, Hayes says, Man, that was unbelievable. And Lovell thinks the same. Such awesome damage. And now he realizes Kranz and Mission Control had made the right decision. They'd been right not to fire up the service module's engine and do a direct abort. Because firing that engine, given how damaged they now knew it was, would have been catastrophic. Sometimes things just did seem to work out for the best. And Kerwin comes on the comm, joking with Lovell. Well, Jim, if you can't take better care of a spaceship than that, we might not give you another one.
1: Needless to say, all of the distinguished visitors uh, in the control centre were most interested in the report uh, from Apollo 13 of the service module condition as um, the 13 crew uh, moved away following the jettison.
0: But at the flight director's console, this description of the service module damage is very worrying for Gene Kranz. Given that the damage is so bad, the command module could be damaged as well. Specifically, he's worried about the heat shield that covers the base of the conical-shaped craft. This heat shield is critical to protect the craft as it goes through the Earth's atmosphere, when the air friction which slows the craft down also heats up the base of the craft to 2,700 plus degrees Celsius. If the heat shield's been damaged... Craft will burn up and kill the crew. And by now, all everyone is thinking about is the power up of the command module. John Aron has been sitting in the ECOM seat since 4 am and he's ready. And the crowd around him is growing. Cy got is there, and the remaining ECOMs for the mission turn up too. The screen in front of them has shown nothing useful for days, bar the quick temperature check on Wednesday night. Now, if John Aaron and Arnie Aldrich have got it right, and nothing actually shorts out because of all the water in the command module, they hope to bring this ship back to life. Aaron glances at the flight controllers around him, then goes on the loop. Flight ECOM. And Gene Kranz says, Go ECOM. And Aaron says, Ready for power up anytime the crew is. Kerwin says, Roger, flight, Aquarius Houston. Lovell says, Go Houston. And Kerwin passes up. Your go to start powering up Odyssey. Lovell turns to Swaggart and motions him towards the tunnel. Swaggart has half an hour of work ahead of him. Swaggart begins and throws the first switch. Lovell braces himself for a sickening pop and sizzle because of the water. But there's no pop or sizzle. Swaggart keeps throwing more and more switches and slowly they hear the noises of the command module coming back to life again. Down in Mission Control, all the e are waiting. By Aaron's calculation, when Swigert is just finishing the procedure and when he turns on the telemetry, they should not be drawing more than 43 amps. Even a little bit more than that and they'll run out of juice before the men get home. So they wait. And then the last few switches are flicked. The telemetry data starts to flow on Aaron's console and all the controllers lean in to look at the amp readout. And when Aaron sees it, he swears. It's not 43 amps, it's 45 amps. He says, what the hell are those two amps doing there? Cy says, I have no idea. Burton says, I'll be damned if I know. And Aaron says, well, they sure as hell don't belong there. We're blowing half our margin. But Aaron has already turned his mind to solving the problem. And he gets onto his back room. Electronics, Ecom? And they say, go Ecom. Aaron says, run through the checklist and see what we left on. Roger. Then Aaron turns to the Guidance and Navigation console, the GNC. You got anything on over there that shouldn't be on? Not that I can see, John. And Aaron says, well, scan. We've got two rogue amps. Then the backup room comes on. Got it. It's the B-mags, the backup gyros. Tell the GNC to have the crew shut them off. Aaron turns to the GNC. Check your B-mags. Are they on? The GNC looks at his console and says, oh, hell. Aaron gets on the comm. Flight ECOM, tell Capcom to tell the crew to shut off the backup gyros. The message gets relayed to Swaggard. Aaron and the other ECOMs watch the console. With relief, they see the amp readout drop to 43 amps. They've done it. The absolute critical step in the rescue plan that it began as crayon drawings in room 210 just days ago has become a reality. Gene Kranz's Tiger Team has achieved the impossible. They've brought the command module back from the brink, and from here on, it's all business. They had walked into this room as a team, and they'd walk out of it as a team. NASA has become NASA again, tough and competent.
1: Apollo Control, Houston, now uh, at 140 hours, 21 minutes now into the flight. Uh, we're receiving the uh, command module tracking data now, and uh, the data is looking good.
0: In the LEM, Lovell is staring out the window at the earth when he says to Hayes, Fredo, it's about time we bailed out of this ship. Hayes says nothing in response, and Lovell turns around to see what's wrong. Hayes' eyes are closed and he's bracing himself against the bulkhead. He's deathly pale. His arms are wrapped around him and he's shaking violently. Lovell tries to hide his shock to keep his voice neutral but he doesn't succeed. Fred, you look awful. Hayes tries to dismiss him and says, forget it, forget it, I'm fine. And at this moment Lovell doesn't feel bad for Hayes. He only feels his admiration for him grow. He says, yeah, you look just terrific. Lovell floats over to him, and he knows that despite Hayes being deathly ill, he's holding it together right to the end. Lovell asks him, can you hold out for a few more hours? Hayes replies, as long as I have to. Lovell says, two hours, that's all you have to hang on for. After that, we're floating in the South Pacific. We open the hatch and it's 80 degrees outside. Hayes shivers and mumbles, 80 degrees. Lovell says, man, are you a mess. So Lovell wraps his arms around him and as the warmth starts to travel between them, Hayes' shivering begins to subside. Then Lovell tells him to float up the tunnel to Swaggart and Lovell finds himself alone in the lamb. Before he can leave, he needs to change the trajectory of the craft from mission control. This is so the LEM will re-enter and drop into a trench off the coast of New Zealand. Lovell adjusts the craft and calls the ground. Okay, Houston Aquarius, I'm at the Lem separation attitude and I'm planning on bailing out. Kerwin says, I can't think of a better idea, Jim. Before he leaves, Lovell grabs some souvenirs and he grabs the plaque that was meant to have been attached to the lunar module when it was on the moon. He springs up the tunnel and stows the souvenirs. He is already buckled into his right-hand seat and Swigert's in the left-hand seat. Now, this is normally where Lovell sits, but during re-entry, it's the command module pilot's seat. Lovell knows that from now on, it'll be Jack who'll be bringing them home. And Lovell says to Swaggart, "'Reporting aboard, Skipper.'" Swaggart looks really self-conscious and says, "'Aye, aye.'" Then he signs on with his headset and says, "'Okay, Houston, we're ready to proceed with hatched close-up.'" And Kerwin says, "'Okay, Jack, did Jim get all the film out of Aquarius?' Swaggart tells Houston Affirmative, then adds, "'And we remembered to get Jim out, too.'" And Kerwin replies, "'Good deal, Jack.'" and what we want you to do is seal the hatch and vent the tunnel until you get down to about 3 pounds per square inch. If the hatch holds pressure for a minute or so you're okay and you can feel free to release Aquarius. Swaggart says okay, copy that. Lovell signals to Swaggart that he'll close the hatch. He pushes out of his couch retrieves the hatch and fits it into place over the tunnel. Although they had a lot of trouble with the hatch on Monday night it seems to fit well now. Lovell floats back up to his seat and Swaggart asks him if it's sealed. Lovell replies, I hope so. Swaggert fixes some switches and fresh oxygen starts flowing into the command module from its own tank. If all goes well it should stabilise and that way they know they don't have a hatch leak. But then Swaggert says, oh no. Lovell and Hayes ask what's wrong. Swaggert says the flow is too high. It looks like we've got a leak. In mission control, John Aaron is looking at the same thing on his console and he says, Oh no, as well. The flight controllers around him ask what's wrong, but then Aaron reckons he knows what's going on. The LEM operates at a slightly lower pressure than the command module. And since the LEM has been regulating the pressure in both craft, the air pressure in the command module is lower than usual. So the command module is pumping air in faster than expected. But this is to bring the command module up to the correct operating pressure Aaron reckons air isn't escaping through a leak in the hatch There just isn't enough air pressure in the command module to begin with Aaron says to those around him Sit tight for a moment, I think we will be alright And about 40 seconds later, he's right The flow rates in the command module as well as those on Aaron's console Have dropped to the right level And over the comm, they can hear the relief in Swaggart's voice when he says to the Capcom, "Okay, it's dropping now, Joe. And Kerwin says, Roger, in that case, when you are comfortably ready to release the LM, you can go ahead and do so. On the mission clock in front of him, it reads 141 hours and 26 minutes. So Swaggart says, do it in four minutes. And Lovell replies, seems like a nice round number. So Swaggert says over the comm, okay Houston, we'll punch off at 141 plus 30. And the way that Mission Control has devised to safely release the lamb and put some distance between it and the command module is ingenious. They purposely left a residual pressure of three pounds per square inch in the tunnel between the two ships, when usually they reduce it to an almost vacuum. But because of this residual pressure, once the latches holding the two craft together are released, Pressure will automatically push the spacecraft apart like a champagne bottle and a cork. Three and a half minutes pass and Swaggart says 30 seconds to Lem Jettison, then 10 seconds, then 5. At this point Swaggart rips the no note he's affixed to the Lem Jet switch and counts down. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, then he flicks the switch. The crew hear an actual pop as the ships separate, and out the windows they see the lem begin to drift away. Swigert says, Houston, lem jettison complete. Kerwin says, OK, copy that. Then he adds quietly, Farewell, Aquarius, and we thank you.
1: And uh, for Apollo 13, the age of Aquarius ended at uh, 141 hours, 30 minutes, ground elapsed time.
0: And now all that is left is three men in a command module, speeding towards the Earth. He then asks Lovell, how do we stand on the moonset check? And Lovell asks, you ready for it? And Swagger answers, as soon as we hit night time. This is again an unorthodox procedure to check that the trajectory of the ship is correct. As the ship arcs around the Earth and comes up on re-entry, the moon will set behind the Earth. NASA has calculated the exact right time that this will happen if the ship is on the correct trajectory. So if the moon does set at this time, then they know they're on the right path home. So as Odyssey begins to arc around the globe, they pass twilight in West Africa and Western Europe. And by the time they hit the Middle East, it's in darkness. Swigert says, Houston, proceeding with the moon set, check. Swaggart is watching out the window. He's watching the moon descend behind the horizon. He can still see it in its entirety. The spacecraft continues to fall and the moon continues to descend. Swaggert says, it's coming down, Joe. We're down to about 45 degrees and it's coming on down. Kerwin says, Roger that. Swaggert says, down to about 38 degrees now. Kerwin says, okay, Jack, sounds real good. With 15 seconds left on the clock before moonset, Lovell says, "Get anything, Jack? Nothing yet. Now, negative. Then Lovell asks again. Now, just three seconds left. Not yet," says Swaggart. But then, at exactly the right time that the Fido, Jerry Bostick, and Mission Control had predicted, the moon drops a tiny bit, and the bottom rim of it is obscured by the Earth. Swaggart turns and grins at Lovell. They are precisely where they need to be for re-entry. Swigert says, Moonset. Then he goes on calm and says, Houston? Attitude checked out okay. Carolyn replies, Good deal.
1: Less than uh, seven minutes now from time of uh, entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Onboard display now shows uh, a velocity of uh, 33,383 feet per second.
0: Lovell then turns his head and looks at each man in turn. He's remembering his re-entry on Apollo 8 and he says to Swaggart and Hayes, Gentlemen, we're about to re-enter. I suggest you get ready for a ride. They check their belts and Swaggart says over the comm, Joe, how far out do you show us now? And Kerwin replies, You're moving at 25,000 miles per hour and on our plot map board, the ship is so close to the earth we can't hardly tell you're out there at all. Odyssey is now four minutes out from biting into the atmosphere and beginning re-entry. The heat and energy will be intense and an ionization cloud will build up around the craft. This will cut off all communications between Mission Control and Odyssey for three minutes and 28 seconds. And with that, Gene Kranz feels a sense of loneliness. This crew will soon be truly on their own. And to him this crew is special. They've faced down problem after problem and executed every procedure perfectly despite being cold and exhausted. He doesn't want to lose them now. And around the room, Kranz can sense the same emotion even for a team that's trained to keep these emotions buried deep. So this is it. Gene Kranz stands up, lights a cigarette and looks around the room. Then he speaks on the calm. Let's go around the horn once more before re-entry. Ecom, you go? Go flight. Retro? Go. Guidance? Go. GNC? Go flight. Capcom? Go. Inco? Go. FAO? We're go flight. And Kranz says to Kerwin. Capcom, you can tell the crew they're go for re-entry. Kerwin says, Roger flight. Odyssey Houston, we just had one last time around the room and everyone says, you're looking great. We'll have loss of signal in about one minute. And Swaggart says, thank you. Outside the windows of the command module, Swaggart can see a pink glow. Then he feels the first hint of gravity reasserting itself. Then the pink turns to orange, and the orange turns to red. And this light is filled with flecks from the heat shield. And the G-forces begin to climb. 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, then even 6G. And all they hear is static. Down in mission control, the wait has begun. The entire room is looking at clocks on the wall counting down till time of AOS, acquisition of signal, in 3 minutes and 28 seconds. Kranz stands and watches the room. They've achieved so much, but now they could have a damaged heat shield. And there's the worry about the parachutes. Would the main shoots the mains even open? Or would they be frozen solid because they've spent so long in the cold of space? Because if they don't open, all will have been for nothing. The craft will hit the water too hard and the three men will die. But he knows there's nothing he can do about it. And as far as he's concerned, you do all you can. And there isn't a sound from the men around him. The air conditioning is running... There's an electrical hum from their consoles and Kranz can hear the sounds of Zippo lighters lighting cigarettes. Nobody moves. Everyone's still. They're all glued to a big map of the world on the screen before them. The room is full of cigarette smoke and the clocks continue to count down.
1: Here in Mission Control, the uh, scene from the recovery uh, ship Iwo Jima has been flashed up on one of our large screens uh, for all of the flight controllers to watch. We have about one minute to go now from uh, time of end to blackout. All right, Retro, we are to be on a blackout in about 30 seconds to try. We'll try, About Charlotte. 30 seconds to go. Uh, the 3 plus 38.
0: The blackout had began over Australia, and now as the men watch, the clocks hit zero. Krantz says quietly to Kerwin, Joe, give them a call. When he does, there is only static. Kerwin calls again. Again, there's nothing. And the clocks continue to count.
1: Network, any reports of RIA acquisition yet? Not at this time, fine. Okay.
0: It's now one minute after the expected end of blackout, and they should have had acquisition of signal by now. They should have been able to contact the crew. Kranz can sense the feeling in the room turning to dread. He asks Chuck Dietrich if the clocks are good. Are they correct? Dietrich replies they're good flight. And Kranz feels the urge to smash something. Has the heat shield failed, is that it? If all had went well, they should have got AOS by now. Kranz knows everyone in the room is thinking the same thing, but no one says anything. No one even looks at one another.
1: Network, no contact yet. in the You've got communications with the ARIA. That's permanent. Okay.
0: In the trench where they've worked so hard to get the trajectory right, there is outright despair. Dave Reed and Duck Dietrich are having a terrible time waiting. It's obvious to them that the crew are coming in shallow. That's why it's taking them so long. And Jerry Bostick is looking in disbelief around him. Just before the crew had gone into Blackout, he'd had a great sense of relief about what they'd accomplished. But now, in the helplessness of Blackout, where he can do nothing, he feels despair closing in. Right
1: 4 AOS flight. Raj. Capcom, why don't you try and give him a call? By
0: them standing by, Odyssey, Odyssey Houston, Houston standing, standing by. by over, over. Then, at one minute and twenty eight seconds past expected AOS, they hear it. <laughs> Okay, Joe, that's all Swagger says. Okay, Joe.
1: Okay, we read you, Jack. We're looking at the weather on TV, and it looks just as advertised, real good.
0: In Apollo 13, the re-entry has been smooth. The atmosphere has slowed their re-entry speed from 25,000 miles an hour to 300 miles an hour. The red light out their window has turned from orange to pink, then to the blue of home.
1: Flight network. Go network. Orion reports it's dropping in and out, but he's remoting it this time. Capcom, why don't you give him a call, see if they can give us the target latitude and longitude? Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your uh, now 67 uh, when you get it over.
0: Lovell looks at his crewmates. He says, Stand by for drogue shoots. They drop to 28,000 feet, then 26,000 feet, and then perfectly on 24,000 feet, they hear a pop. And out the window, they see two drogue parachutes fling up in the air behind them. But Swaggart knows they're not out of the woods yet. Their main parachutes need to open or they'll smash into the Pacific. The two drogue chutes disconnect and they're so close. The final piece of Mission Control's elegant and carefully choreographed dance to get them home has to take place. They just need their mains to open. And there they are. Three beautiful red and white shoots fly up behind them. They're not frozen and they're working perfectly.
1: Visible contact flashed. Houston, we show you on the
0: main this really looks In 13, Jim Lovell grabs the edge of his couch. Hayes and Swaggart do the same. Lovell says, hang on. If this is anything like Apollo 8, it could be rough. The main hang on, but it isn't rough. Their craft slices cleanly into the water, then shoots back out again. Through the windows, Swaggart can see water running down the panes. Lovell simply says, fellas, we're home. Mission Control goes wild. Joe Kerwin nearly collapses with relief at the Capcom's console. Gene Kranz fist pumps the air, and then he starts crying. He tries to stop, but this only seems to make it worse. So he stands at the console, tears streaming down his face. Against all odds, Mission Control has managed to return the crew of Apollo 13 safely back home. And in the months that follow, NASA will go on to describe the Apollo 13 mission as a successful failure. This was Saving Apollo 13. If you liked the show, I'd love if you took the time to tell a friend about it. This show was produced by forensic engineering firm Brady Haywood. Brady Haywood specializes in forensic engineering and investigating the causes of failures. For more information, head to the website bradyhaywood.com.au This show was written and narrated by me, Sean Brady. It was produced in partnership with the team at Waveland Creative who helped write, edit and mix the show. Special thanks to everyone who reviewed my scripts, fact-checked and given valuable feedback while producing this podcast. And one last thing, if you've got a complicated idea that you want to communicate with your employees or customers, then making a podcast like this is a really great way to get your message across. And I really recommend Waveland Creative who helped me produce this show. To talk to the team at Waveland about your idea, head to the website, Waveland.fm. There's a link in this episode's show notes.